0: February 13th. Uh, we have very exciting talks and topics. Uh, so please uh, stay with us and enjoy the event. So this here is a uh, t- uh, agenda for today. Uh, the first speaker will start around 10, 10, 10.05. Uh, so uh, the se- second speaker will join us around 11.40. And the third speaker uh, will be around 10.10. His talk is a little bit shorter. Okay, so uh, thanks a lot to AWA Headquarter. The Zoom platform was provided by AWA National Office. Uh, it's actually quite expensive, so really highly appreciated. Uh, some of the sessions, at least the first one, thanks to uh, Jim. And uh, uh, so uh, the second one, we still have to ask Michael because probably some issue with JPL. Uh, so if things are recorded, it will be posted after the event. Um, If anybody got disconnected, please keep trying to reconnect. It it probably won't happen, but just a reminder, just keep trying. It it, it won't be a a permanent issue. Um, The audio, if your bandwidth is limited, you can use the dial-in or, you know, uh, temporary turn off the uh, screen uh, video and that that will help the bandwidth. Um, And... uh, if you haven't done that, please try to sign in uh, Zoom or you can change, change the name now with your real name so we can better identify you. Uh, it will help for the arrangement. Uh, and uh, uh, normally in our AWA event, we have uh, you know one hour before and maybe 30 minutes, one hour after for networking. For online, it's difficult to do that. So right now for attendees, you won't see each other's name because some people don't want to be identified. It's for privacy. But if you type something in the chat room, uh, your name will show up and people will know you are here. Uh, so uh, people can uh, start to chat with you and uh, engage with the uh, communication. Uh, for the question, uh, you are welcome to type your question in Q&A box, uh, it's highly preferred. But uh, at the end of the event, please, you, know, you can raise your hand, you, will, you can then we will enable you to unmute yourself and uh, you can interact with the speaker, speak out your question comments. Uh, for the security and privacy, Zoom has improved a lot, uh, but if you still have any concern or you are working on defense uh, contract, please don't say anything about any sensitive business or national security issue or national information. Or you can try to dial in. Uh, that might be a little bit secure, according to some people, but general, it's not a big problem. Okay, just a few words on for local aerospace. Uh, Southern California, California has been, um, you know, um, you know, it's a it place with aerospace activity with uh, uh, great heritage and a great future. So where people, you know, doing electric hybrid aircraft, sustainable aviation, which is a big uh, push and you know, a movement uh, in the country and uh, also AAA, and people doing James, James Webb Space Telescope, Defense, super holding it, of course, the, you know, the Mars 2020 is going to be landing uh, February 18, And this, which is also the second topic today. And uh, of course, you know, a lot of companies doing, you know, SpaceX, Virgin Orbit, Virgin Galactic, you know, and the student projects. And uh, AWA, once you join the membership, there's a great feature called double Engage. You can immediately uh, log on online and chat with expert way member, nationally and internationally. And there are discussion boards, great information. So please uh, utilize that great benefit. Or we'll do some kind of demo event uh, uh, in the future so that you be more familiar with that. And uh, try to keep people more you know, uh, inspired and uh, network together. And uh, we have keep doing events like uh, today. And uh, um, you know, we, we set for almost every Saturday. So here are the, some upcoming events. Uh, but you can look at our website or sign in our mailing sheets. Um, and uh, the AW has different level of, uh, of membership from professional to associate educator is free. So you can log on, and look at aw.o slash membership. And the one words I want to talk, uh, mention is that today, all of our three speakers are uh, happen to be AW member members. And our first speaker is even the distinguished lecturer so it's really our great honor and you can see how the membership uh, really worked and uh, our first speaker today is mr jim Cavera, is a aaa member and uh, uh, mostly he's the aaa distinguished lecturer is a senior engineer from blue origin he's, uh, has undergraduate degrees in optical engineering and the physics and his graduate work was in nuclear engineering and aerospace engineering, during which he explored the use of dense plasma uh, focused devices for interstellar travel. He has served for many years on AIAA's Nuclear and Future Fly Technical Committee, and is currently its publication director. His current research is in neutronics, and uh, uh, I think this MHD means magnetohydrodynamics, right? Magneto hydrodynamics.
1: Correct. Yes.
0: <laughs> MHD, MHD codes for fusion device simulation. So without further ado, let's welcome Mr. Jim Cavera.
1: Thank you very much. Great introduction there. I am uh, going to try and share my screen. So let's see here. Share screen. We tested this out. It does work. There we go. All right. So everybody should be seeing my slides now. Yes. Great. All right. So I am going to talk to you about nuclear space propulsion. Um, My goal is not to give an exhaustive explanation of every possible nuclear space propulsion topic. Um, That is several days worth of lecture. Um, Rather, my goal is to get everyone a good background in nuclear physics and what goes into making a nuclear reactor and some of the concepts in which this can be used for um, space power and propulsion. Um, I'll go into some of the work that's been done before and some of the, uh, a little bit of the ongoing research. Um, In terms of concepts, I uh, tend to rank things in order of scariness. from the least scary proposal all the way up to the, oh my gosh, what on earth were they thinking kind of proposals. Um, Kind of keeping a little bit light. Um, So in order to give this a good treatment, what we have to do is start from what we have today, start from what's known. Basically, we're always trying to fight the rocket equation for any propulsion concept. Here's what we have today. These are a a small sampling of some of the um, commercially available rocket engines that are in use um, or have historically been in use. um, The ones from the uh, X-15, the space shuttle main engine, space shuttle solid rocket boosters, the SpaceX Raptor engine. Um, Note that they have a specific impulse of 300 to 450 ish seconds. Um, Hopefully everyone knows what specific impulse is. Um, For those who are just casual rocket scientists as opposed to professional rocket scientists, the best way to explain specific impulse is that it's a measure of efficiency of an engine. And it roughly correlates to the amount of time that one pound of fuel will give you one pound of thrust. So higher is better. Thrust, on the other hand, is the other measure of a rocket engine, Um, how much stuff it puts out, how much force it can produce. Um, And again, current rocket engines are in the uh, hundreds to low thousands of kilonewtons. Um, At Blue Origin, we make use of a couple of different rocket engines um, that have specific impulses Mm, kind of in line uh, as to, you know, what these uh, uh, other rocket engines are capable of doing. Um, Thrusts between 100,000 pounds and about half a million pounds. So, you know, basically what has been done before. Now, you note at the very bottom, the Instar engine used in the Dawn 1 mission has a much higher specific impulse um, and a much lower thrust. Um, this is there for comparison purposes. Um, it is not a chemical engine. It is an electrical, an ion thruster. Excuse, um, me, Jim. So, Excuse me, Jim. Yes. Uh,
0: some attendee indicate is it possible you can make it full screen?
1: Oh, uh, I can oh, try. Yeah. Yes. Let's see. Uh, see it's view or if, uh, uh, Full screen mode. There we go. Let's try that. How's that? Great. Thank you. Okay. No problem. I'm gonna try and move my other windows around so I can still see questions as they come up. There we go. All right. Okay, so um, electrical propulsion is in a different category. In general, it is much higher efficiency, but at the expense of thrust. Now in a perfect world, what we would want is something with both an incredibly high efficiency and an incredible amount of thrust. So here's what we have to deal with. This is the rocket equation. Note the inclusion of the logarithmic terms, and these are the ones that give us trouble. So if you plug in some of the figures from the previous slide and figure out that you want a delta V of say 5% the speed of light, then your mass fraction, the uh, amount of fuel you need um, is an incredible number. Um, In fact, it's more atoms than we think exists in the known universe. Clearly, a chemical rocket isn't going to get us there. What we need to do is, again, because of that nice little um, logarithmic term in there, uh, we need to really increase the specific impulse by a lot in order to get to any meaningful level of uh, efficiency to where we can actually colonize the solar system, which should obviously be our goal. I mean, I may be a little bit biased working for Blue Origin and all, but, you know, I think it's a good goal. So here's a hint. How can we bump up the specific impulse? Well, we need a more energetic fuel. Um, Here's a handy little chart of some of the fuel energy densities in megajoules per kilogram, Um, sugar, coal, fat, gasoline, about 40 megajoules per kilogram. And this is roughly the same um, order of magnitude as we get from burning hydrogen and oxygen in a liquid fueled rocket engine. Um, hydrogen and oxygen, uh, hydrogen burned um, with oxygen has a fuel energy density of about 88 megajoules per kilogram. Uranium, on the other hand, has many orders of magnitude higher energy density. And for this reason, I think this is where our propulsion future lies. So what do we do with all of this uranium? Obviously, we burn it using the term loosely, um, in a fission plant. And this is uh, a basic outline of how nuclear fission works, if you're not familiar with. Step one, all we do is uh, we get some neutrons. We get step two, we get some stuff that splits apart when a neutron hits it, uranium, good choice there. Um, Step three, we make sure that there are enough extra neutrons liberated in the reaction that it keeps the reaction going. And then we just stand back. Uranium is wonderful stuff in this regard. It'll just continue to produce energy um, so long as you continue to feed it neutrons. And since nuclear fission produces neutrons, you can keep it going pretty much forever. So how many neutrons do we actually need? There is a factor in nuclear science and nuclear engineering called N. Um, Some literature calls it K-effective Um, This represents the number of neutrons produced by the reaction divided by the number of neutrons needed to sustain it. Um, As you can see on the previous slide, this particular little picture um, depicts three neutrons coming out and one neutron being used. In general, this is how it happens. But you also have to take into account the neutrons that are absorbed, um, the neutrons that scatter without doing anything, things like that. So that reactivity factor depends on the particular fuel that you're using, all of the materials that are used, the ones that absorb neutrons, the ones that reflect neutrons, etc, the temperature of the reactor, the reactor geometry, you know how everything is constructed. And of course, since this is all governed by quantum mechanics, which is a probabilistic science, um, you know there's some randomness that comes into play with it. Um, the phase of the moon, the, you know, whether you've, um, you know, made the right sacrifices on the right days or whatever. It's, you know, there's always a little bit of unknown when it comes to quantum mechanics. In general, we try and engineer this away, of course. But, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. Some typical values. Um, if n is less than 1, then the reactor is called subcritical there are not enough free neutrons to sustain the reaction. And so that fission chain reaction will slowly die off. N exactly equal to one is the point at which the reactor is critical. And contrary to pretty much every science fiction movie, a reactor going critical doesn't mean that you're about to be in the middle of an explosion. It means that it's just starting to work. Commercial nuclear reactors, um, the ones that generate power, um, try and keep their effective reactivity uh, between one and 1.1. So enough neutrons to keep the reactor going and a little bit more to account for things like neutrons being absorbed, neutrons being lost to the environment, that kind of thing. If N is greater than 1.1, those reactors start to, those reactor operators start to worry. If N is greater than two, That's when you start to run. And if N is greater than 50, you you've basically just detonated a bomb. Reactivity is also sometimes listed in dollars and cents in some literature. Um, Depending on the source of the literature that you're reading, you might see N, you might see dollars and cents. N and K-effective are generally used for reactor operations, for reactor planning, things like that, reactor maintenance. Um, Dollars and cents is generally used by reactor designers, um, people that are um, involved in um, the simulation, design, construction of the reactor. The reason for this is going to be a little bit clearer once we get into it. But in general, they represent the same thing. Reactivity of less than a dollar means that the reactivity is subcritical from one dollar to about a buck fifty means the reactor is delayed critical and I'll get into what that means in a moment. Around two bucks means the reactor is about is prompt critical. Um, again I'll explain that in a bit and around thousand dollars again you've just detonated a bomb. Uh, Looks like we have a couple of questions here. Uh, Where was Chernobyl on the n-value scale? Okay, good question. The problem with that, knowing an exact answer to that is that honestly, the instruments kind of melted along with the core of the reactor. And so they weren't able to get good readings. From the papers that I read, the best estimations place in at right around 10 for Chernobyl. So not near bomb territory, but well above the we need to run territory. Okay, so here's your standard reaction cycle. You have some uranium-235. I'll go into what the different isotopes mean in a moment, but uranium-235 is what us nuclear scientists consider the good stuff. Um, It's the stuff that will happily fission when hit with a neutron. You then add a neutron, then nucleus briefly turns into uranium-236 in an excited state, and then decays into two other things plus some neutrons. Um, in this particular instance on the top line, it's krypton-92, barium-141, and three neutrons. But a lot happens at the same time. Um, if you've gone through a basic college chemistry course, um, you may recall that in college chemistry 101, they said that any time you burn a hydrocarbon, um, you always get carbon dioxide in water as, as a result, which is kind of true, except the real world is a lot more complicated. And if it were that simple, then we wouldn't need emission controls on cars so much. You also get carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, all sorts of other things going on. Nuclear reactions are the same way. The simplistic picture of the top line is truly a simplistic picture, and there are lots of side reactions that are going on simultaneously. For instance, the uranium-235, when hit with the same neutron, could also just emit a gamma ray and happily stay as uranium-236, or it could split into strontium-90 and xenon-144 and two neutrons, or rubidium and cesium, or whatever. And then you have to remember that all of those decay products, all of the strontium 90s and rubidium 96s, etc., are also radioactive. And so they're going to decay. For instance, Krypton 92 can decay by um, releasing a neutron, um, dropping down to rubidium 91 and releasing a beta particle. Or it could release a neutron and have an excited rubidium nucleus, which then spits out another two neutrons, etc., and so on. So in the core of a reactor, there is a lot happening at the same time, which goes back to the definition of prompt critical versus delayed critical um, as in the previous slide. So the prompt neutrons are the ones that are ejected immediately after the fission event or from the fission event. So the uranium-235 absorbs a neutron, spits out three neutrons, or spits out two or three neutrons, depending on what it um, splits apart into. These are the prompt neutrons. They come out immediately. So when a reactor, um, as seen in the couple of slides back, um, is prompt critical, it means that it is critical only relying on those prompt neutrons. Delayed critical, Takes into account these delayed neutrons. These are the ones that come off the fission products as they naturally decay. So when Fukushima happened about ten-ish years ago, um, a lot of my friends had a lot of questions for me because you know nuclear scientist here. Um, they're like, "Well, why couldn't they just shut the reactor off?" Well, you can. You can scram the reactor. You can throw in all the control rods. You can absorb all the neutrons you can to quench all of these main fission reactions pretty quickly. But all of these side reactions, all of these natural radioactive decay reactions are still producing neutrons. And so it's not so much turning off a car engine, it's more like waiting for your oven to get cool after it's been on for a long time. Let's see. um, Getting some questions here, Ah, okay. Where was Chernobyl? Oh, I should mark that as answered. All right, sorry. Back to neutron land.
0: Yeah, it's good Jim, we got the uh, feedback that uh, is it possible to move the cursor away from the slide? Yeah, thank
1: you. Yes, there we go. Is that coming in too? All right. Thank you. No problem. Okay, so the bottom line is that reactions are a miss, But since quantum mechanics runs on statistics, it means it's a somewhat predictable miss. So this is a chart of all of the fission products in a standard U-235 reaction cycle, um, as organized by their atomic number. You can see, instead of just splitting apart ran completely randomly, um, the reaction tends to favor a two thirds, one third split in the reaction products. So going back a slide, let me see if I can go back a slide. there we go. Um, You'll notice that there's kind of an uneven split between the uh, lighter and the heavier reaction products. And this little fact is what allows us to make nuclear reactors somewhat predictable and get around some of the quantum mechanical probabilityness of it. So chemists have it fairly easy. They have 118 standard chemicals that they know about. Um, Most of them, they don't even use. Pretty much everything after uranium is uh, artificially created. And... um, that's it. It's a very small periodic table of elements. Contrary, nuclear physicists have this guy. This is the table of isotopes. Kind of like the periodic table, you start off way down here at the lower left with helium, and then you work your way upward to the upper right, um, going toward um, iron, lead, uranium, all of the more fun stuff as you get upward in terms of uh, number of protons, number of neutrons. Everything in black is pretty much stable, but as you drift away from that axis, things become increasingly more interesting. Now note that all of our fun nuclear fuels are kind of up here in the upper right hand part. You can see uranium-238 called out specifically Thorium is in there. Um, That's where us nuclear scientists examine things for potential as a nuclear fuel. These are all of the unstable things, all of the things that really don't like to exist, like to split apart and produce energy. Down here on the other end, hydrogen, helium, oxygen, things like that. These are so stable that they make for good shielding materials. They can absorb neutrons without really caring too much, without becoming unstable. Now note that iron 56 is specifically called out on this chart. And the reason for that is very interesting. It is because iron 56 is the most stable stuff in the universe. It is the one isotope that can neither gain energy from fusion or gain energy from fission. So. This is why white dwarves are largely made of iron. This is why somewhere in a hundred trillion years, very deep time, the universe is going to consist of largely just big hunks of iron floating around in space. Iron hangs around forever. But uh, also this is kind of the, represents the dividing line. Everything heavier than iron can potentially gain energy from fission. Everything lighter than iron can potentially gain energy from nuclear fusion. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of these decay modes. Now on the previous slide here, um, things are color coded by their half-life and they're also arranged somewhat by decay mode. Um, By nuclear decay, I mean, emitting an alpha particle, emitting a beta particle, emitting a gamma ray, things like that. Here are some of the common ones. Um, Alpha decay um, is where a nucleus ejects an alpha particle, a helium nucleus. When it does that, the nucleus, the original nucleus's atomic mass drops by four because you just ejected a helium nucleus and the atomic number drops by two. Beta decay, you've also probably heard of. Um, this is where a nucleus ejects an electron and an antineutrino. The atomic mass doesn't decrease simply because electrons and antineutrinos are incredibly lightweight. The atomic number, however, increases by one. And this may seem a little bit counterintuitive, because how can something losing an electron increase an atomic number? The reason for this is it's not the chemistry idea of something losing an electron and becoming ionized. This is the nuclear physics idea of something losing an electron. When that happens, a proton that's in, or a neutron that's in the nucleus, all of a sudden decides it would much rather be an electron, a proton, and an antineutrino. Protons being a little bit unstable, they can do that. So since this electron is coming from the nucleus, it leaves behind a proton, increasing the atomic number by one. So inverse beta decay is just the opposite. The atomic number drops by one, atomic mass staying the same. This is when a proton spontaneously decides that it would much rather be a neutron. So it ejects a positron and a neutrino. Um, Ejecting a gamma-ray, some radioisotopes are natural gamma-ray emitters. And then there are some others. Um, Some isotopes can spontaneously split apart. Um, Some can um, absorb an electron, emit a neutrino. Sometimes you have things that just flat out eject a uh, neutron, eject a proton, or sometimes they split into two very specific components for quantum mechanical reasons. Um, Everything below fission is kind of a special case. All right, so we have these isotopes that we would like to use because they are incredibly energy dense. Again, uranium has many orders of magnitudes more density a higher energy density than the best chemical fuels that we can use. But all of these isotopes produce varying amounts of radiation that we're going to have to shield against, because ultimately we want to put people on our spacecraft. So a little bit about radiation shielding. This is kind of a a different things for different situations sort of application. Alpha particles um, being lower energy, heavier, They can be stopped by skin or paper. Um, They're pretty easy to shield against. Beta particles are faster moving electrons, um, but thin metal works adequately. Um, Any kind of metal foil would be fine. X-rays, gamma rays, um, any sort of high energy photon. This is when you're starting to talk about needing lead um, or other dense substances. In the case of gamma rays, um, a lot of lead. Now, neutrons are the exception to pretty much every rule. The reason is that neutrons are not only emitted from things, but can also be captured by things. And then those things that, those those, uh, nucleuses, nuclei that do the capturing can spontaneously transmute into other things that we may not necessarily want. This neutron capture is based off of the energy profile that those neutrons have, the average amount of kinetic energy. Thermal neutrons are um, the lowest energy. They are around 140th of an electron volt in terms of kinetic energy. Um, they are called thermal neutrons because this is about the same amount of energy that a gas at room temperature has. Low energy, slow neutrons are up to about 10 ev medium energy about 100 times that high energy or or, uh about 10 times that so you know faster than that um note that these are really not hard and fast categories um you'll see in literature people talking about low energy neutrons medium energy neutrons high energy or fast neutrons um these can mean different things depending on context so they're not any real hard dividing lines. The important thing to know is that different materials have different capture cross-sections, different probabilities of capturing these different speeds of neutrons. And effective shielding comes from choosing the materials that really like to capture the particles that you're expecting. Uh, Getting a question. Let's see. Okay. Uh, Let's there we go. So here's a random fact that actually does come into play later. Don't worry, going somewhere with this. Physicists like to have fun with units. Um, Chemists are stuck with really long chemical names. Um, Biologists have to learn Latin, you know, things like that. Us physicists, we get to have fun with things. So 10 to the minus 28th square meters used as a unit of area is called a barn. And yes, this does, in fact, come from the can't hit the broad side of a barn expression. Since physicists also need something smaller than a barn, a microbarn is also referred to sometimes as an outhouse. Yes, you will see these in serious scientific literature. When it comes to fusion reactions, one shake is about 10 to the minus 8 seconds. This comes from shakes of a lamb's tail. A jerk is 10 to the ninth joules. And yes, jerks per shake is a perfectly well-defined unit equal to a petawatt. Um, one foe, one to t- which is short for 10 to the 51 ergs is uh, the amount of energy contained in a supernova. And while we're mentioning fun units, um, you will sometimes see in nuclear literature um, one BED, one banana equivalent dose, or the amount of radiation that you get by eating one banana due to the presence of radioactive potassium. Um, and then, of course, one of my favorites, which I've been told is actually in active use at JPL, one pirate ninja is equal to one kilowatt hour of energy over the course of one Martian day, um, as uh, mentioned in the book, The Martian. So. Yes, lots of fun units. We are gonna be making use of barns and outhouses. Now, even though these units are actual cross-sectional area measured in square meters, we're really gonna use them more in terms of a measure of probability, the amount, uh, the, the chance that a reaction will actually happen. So in general, control, generation, and absorption of neutrons is called neutronics which is a lot like electronics, except dumber. And the reason that it's dumber is that we don't have the neutronic equivalent of a diode or a wire or a printed circuit board or anything like that. Electrons, we can control very well. Neutrons, we have to kind of arrange materials and hope. So in designing this set of materials that we're going to arrange into a nuclear reactor, Bear in mind that the chemical properties of whatever materials that we are using is totally irrelevant. It's only the nucleus that matters. If you're designing a reactor and you're wanting to use carbon as a reflector, it does not matter at all if that carbon is graphite, um, diamond, or just you know a, a block of carbonized sugar for whatever reason. The important thing is that it's actually carbon 12 and not some other kind of carbon. Uh, likewise, neutron absorbers, um, hydrogen is a popular one. Guess what? Water has a lot of hydrogen. Um, polyvinyl chloride has a lot of hydrogen. Um, plastics have a lot of hydrogen. It doesn't matter what form that hydrogen is, so long as you get the hydrogen nuclei in the right place at the right time and doing the right thing. Okay, so now that we're talking about materials, um, talking about neutron absorbers, neutron reflectors, it's important to note that whenever I say neutron reflector, it's not a reflector so like a mirror. Don't think of it in terms of that. Think of it as being a reflector, more like a white wall is a reflector. It's more of a scattering than any sort of, of actual um, um, optical reflection. We don't know of anything that's the neutronic equivalent of an optical mirror. Okay, other classes of materials. Fissile, sometimes called fissionable, are the things that can undergo fission when hit with a neutron. So uranium, plutonium, that kind of thing are the most common materials. Now the cross section of uranium-235, the stuff that we most use for our nuclear reactors, is around 600 barns to slow neutrons. 600 barns is in terms of probability, pretty much a sure thing. It's kind of absolutely going to happen if it's above about 10 barns. If it's around one barn, it's kind of sort of a 50-50 chance. Again, these aren't hard and fast numbers. Um, If it's a millibarn or a microbarn, it's probably not going to happen. So just so that you're keeping scales in mind when we talk about cross-section and reaction probabilities. So fertile materials are things that can be converted into something that is fissile. So you may have heard about thorium reactors. The thorium fuel cycle is different than the uranium fuel cycle. In the uranium fuel cycle, in the U-235 fuel cycle, U-235 is struck directly with a neutron and fissions right away. Thorium, when it is struck by a neutron, it turns itself into uranium-233, which can then be hit by another neutron and fission occurs. Um, So thorium is very useful as a fuel, but it's important to remember that it's not the thorium that's itself that is doing the fissioning. It's thorium as transmuted into uranium that's doing the fissioning. So when we're looking at fuels, we have a few desirable materials that we're looking for. We want it to have a long half-life when it comes to natural decay modes, meaning it's relatively stable. Um, You know, uranium, um, naturally occurring uranium, has half-life depending on the specific isotope of, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to millions of years, so not a problem there. Um, We want it to have a high neutron capture cross-section, so something 10 or higher so that we know that the reaction is going to take place. We want it to release two or more neutrons per fission event so that we have enough free neutrons to keep the chain reaction going. And ideally, we would like to be relatively abundant in nature. Things like uranium, thorium, though they're not metals that you can find on every corner necessarily, they are fairly common. Okay, there are materials that also decay by spontaneous fission or spontaneous neutron emission. Now note, if you go all the way back to the beginning slide, in order to start a nuclear reactor going, you're initially going to need a neutron coming something Coming from somewhere, um, an initial neutron that hits and kicks the reaction off. You could think of it as kind of like a nuclear spark plug for the reaction. Materials like uh, americium and beryllium are oftentimes pressed together into a pellet to work as a spark plug, because they, together they have a nice little reaction um, where they by they create a few free neutrons. Very handy. Other materials. Moderators are materials that do not completely absorb neutrons, but serve to slow them down. Um, Many fissile materials, uranium in particular, has a higher neutron cross-section to slow or thermal neutrons. So the neutrons that come immediately out of the fission reaction are fast. We'll want to slow them down. Materials work that, uh, that work as absorbers will also serve as moderators, and so moderation in a normal commercial nuclear power plant is usually done by water, has a lot of hydrogen, slows down neutrons, also absorbs neutrons to act as shielding, and works well as a coolant. Okay, putting these things together. This is the non-reactor reactor. This is called an RTG. It is not a nuclear reactor in that there is no controlled fission taking place. This is a nuclear reactor that only relies on the heat of natural decay. In the middle, that bright red stuff is stuff that gets hot. It is uh, plutonium, polonium, some kind of radioactive isotope. People have looked at using nickel, cobalt, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Whatever. All of these materials have a sufficiently short half-life that they just naturally sit there and get hot. Well, we can use that heat. We can surround this material with a cooling system, with thermoelectric or thermionic converters, etc., produce electricity directly. Great, we're in business. We now have a battery that lasts pretty much forever and we'll sit there quietly for decades producing heat and electricity. We can use this for propulsion, right? Well, sort of. There are a few advantages and disadvantages to this. Here are some real world radioisotope thermal generator designs. Um, the fuel that they've used, the half-life, um, the amount of power that they've produced. The, as you can kind of see from the chart, The advantages are that they're dead simple to build. There's nothing to control. You can use pretty much any unstable isotope that produces a sufficient amount of heat. And the operation is very predictable. Um, There's no chain reaction going on, not a lot of quantum mechanical weirdness to deal with. So, you know, it's uh, basically a battery. The disadvantages, however, the things that make these not suitable for propulsion is the fact that there's no way to turn them off this lump of material is going to sit there staying hot for the lifetime of the material. Um, There's also a low energy density because these rely on radioactive decay and not a forced fission reaction. Um, They produce a lot of heat, so there are potentially some waste heat issues to deal with. So not great for a large amount of power or for space propulsion, but not for lack of trying. In point of fact, some folks back in the 70s decided to build what's called a poodle thruster. Um, This is basically a resisto jet that doesn't require electricity. Yay, no electricity to use, but you also can't turn it off. It's going to always be hot. The specs on this poodle thruster were about in line with other resisto jet thrusters. So specific impulse of about 600 seconds. They fired it for a duration of about 700 seconds in the test. Thrust produced was negligible. Okay, Uh, let's see. So um, questions, so having a little bit of technical difficulties here because if I move the question box over off to the side to where it doesn't isn't interfering with the slides i can't see questions right away so what i'm going to ask is that we hold off questions until the end and i'll try and leave about 20 minutes or a half hour or so for those so okay um next so now that we have some of our materials defined let's build a terrestrial reactor All terrestrial power generating reactors look about the same. What we do is we start with, if you can imagine this, a bundle of soda straws. Um, So grab a bunch of soda straws the next time you're at a restaurant, take all of the wrappers off and hold them in a bundle. This is kind of what the core of a nuclear reactor looks like. We'll make those soda straws out of zirconium alloy. The reason is because zirconium is completely transparent to neutrons. Neutrons act like it's not there so it won't interfere with any of our other calculations. Some of these soda straws will fill up with some fissile material, uranium-235, or a thorium, plutonium, whatever you want, whatever fissile material you can get your hands on. Some of these we will add control rods to, things that absorb neutrons. And by pulling these soda straws in and out of the core, we can control the amount of neutron flux in different parts of that core. We'll leave a few of these empty. And then we'll put this whole mess into a really big container, basically a coffee percolator. We fill it up with water, add a ton of shielding, stand back. What happens is that the reaction, once started up with our little nuclear spark plug, um, starts getting hotter and hotter. We use the control rods to make sure that we're absorbing enough neutrons that it doesn't go into any sort of thermal runaway. And then in through the empty straws, water starts circulating through natural convection. Hot water means steam that can spin a turbine, generating electricity, yay. So terrestrial reactors are categorized by a number of things. First, the fuel used, enriched uranium, depleted uranium, and you know enrichment levels are listed on this slide, and again, not really hard and fast numbers, but this is generally what is meant by enrichment ratio. Um, they're also ca- characterized by the moderator that you're using—water, heavy water, salt, etc. The coolant, which is often the same thing as the moderator, but not necessarily always. And then the core configuration: fuel rods, little pebbles, whatever the core looks like. Here is what a typical reactor looks like up close. This is the core of a reactor. You can see in the center of the slide, the bundle of straws. These are the fuel rods, the ones that are on um, um, linear actuators. Um, Those are control rods. Some of the rods are sensors. This whole thing is sitting in a swimming pool. Pretty much all reactors kind of look like this. All right, here is the simplest possible reactor that we can make. These are all over the world. There are dozens of them. They are happily producing power 24/7. This is the boiling water reactor. It is most like the coffee percolator in design. In the middle, you have your fuel elements, um, control rods that can go in or out in between the fuel elements. Um, You circulate water through it. The water gets hot, flashes to steam, steam drives a turbine. Yay, electrical power. A pressurized water reactor adds another step. Um, It uh, keeps the reactor core uh, inside a pressure vessel, not allowing the water to boil, uh, the water to boil, um, and instead using a steam generator. Um, This is a bit of an added safety um, because the water that's flowing through the reactor core, oops, let me go back, um, does not interact with the water that's flashing to steam and going to the turbine. Um, Since the water that is in the reactor core um, can gradually pick up some neutrons and become a radioactive waste hazard in itself, this is considered a good thing. Again, there are a lot of these running dozens of them all over the world, happily generating power. Okay, here is another design. This is the Can-Do design, which is short for Canadian Depleted Uranium. Um, This changes the core geometry um, and makes use of heavy water such that um, you can use naturally occurring or low enriched uranium. Basically the same though as the uh, pressurized water reactor. Okay, now we get into the fun stuff. Um, And by fun, I mean um, interesting concepts that have not necessarily been as thoroughly explored as the various types of water reactors, um, but still might have some potential both for ground-based power production and for use in space. Uh, so here we have a di- diagram of an advanced cooled, um, advanced gas-cooled reactor. Um, replace the water with gas. Works pretty much the same way. Um, this is interesting in that um, it's the first thing that starts to look like a rocket to us. Um, because you can imagine that instead of recapturing the hot gas to spin a turbine, you can jet the hot gas out the back. There's your rocket engine. Liquid metal reactors are another thing that have been um, pioneered here for power generation on Earth. Um, they use a metal as a first stage coolant moderator. Um, they can breed their own fuel from otherwise unusable isotopes. Um, and they this this is where the, the calling something a moderator is a little bit of a misnomer. There's some more complicated physics going on here. Um, Suffice it to say that these are interesting in the fact that you can use almost anything as fuel, including waste fuel from other reactors. All right, pebble bed reactors. These are just starting to gain traction here on Earth as power generation um, and have a lot of interesting potential in space. So instead of your core being a bundle of soda straws, your core is now a gumball machine filled with these little magical gumballs containing um, nuclear fuel surrounded by a nice candy coating of graphite. What makes these interesting is that this particular reactor design is completely meltdown proof. The reason is is that it is kind of automatically controlling. Um, If you imagine this big pile of gumballs or ping pong balls or whatever kind of thing you want to use, as they get hotter they want to expand as they expand they push each other away a little bit further which means that um, the average density of the fuel goes down which means that there are fewer neutrons being captured which means that it cools down slightly so they get up to a certain temperature and then they want to maintain that temperature pretty much forever all by themselves, no active control, no moving control rods in and out needed. So very interesting idea that is uh, starting to be explored, um, not so much in the United States here, but there are some research reactors around the world that are are looking into this concept. Aqueous core reactor. uh, This was an interesting one that um, was uh, tested out at Oak Ridge. This too, I'm including not because it's seen a lot of use on earth. In fact, they only built one test reactor at Oak Ridge, Um, but because there are some interesting parallels for use in space propulsion to this particular reactor design. So instead of the core being a solid, um, with the soda straws, solid fuel, that kind of thing, the core is a liquid mixture of uranium salt and water, and control is accomplished by adding other salts or submerging control rods or somehow changing the actual chemical density in this vat of fluid. Again, not really ever used on Earth except in one instance as a research reactor, but some interesting parallels as to what we can do in space, and I'll get into that a little bit later. The Triga reactor is an interesting concept. There are a lot of these in the United States. Um, Triga stands for Oh, Training and radio isotope Generation General Atomics. I think that's the acronym. Anyway, these, instead of being a static core configuration, what they do is they rapidly fire fuel rods through a static core. This means that those N factors, that reactivity factor, can be phenomenally high. It can go up to 50 or 100 or better, but only for microseconds at a time, which keeps the whole thing from turning into a bomb. And this offers a really interesting um, opportunity for uh, for propulsion. Okay, so I have a video about this, which I am going to try to share. Let's see. Please, uh, can I share this window instead of the other window?
0: Yeah, uh, Jimmy, probably have to use the green share button again.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, there we go. Share that window. All right. So uh, hopefully everyone sees a black screen with a video on it right now. Um, so this is a video of a trigger, uh, trigger reactor being fired. And I think I have it up right up before uh, full screen if possible oh yes 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 let's try full screen here okay uh there we go let's try this okay that really brief flash was the control rods being fired through the core and um you can see the reactor core design um, very nicely in this picture, um, the bundle of soda straws, that kind of thing. Um, you will also note this nice blue glow, glow coming from the Cherenkov radiation as um, the uh, electrons that are released from that nuclear reaction are forced through the water. It speeds faster than light. Very interesting. Um, so, you, uh, I,
0: uh, some attendee mentioned, could you praise it again and also uh, make it, uh real full screen in the view menu
1: yeah let's try the real full screen full screen interface Is that a little bit better uh,
0: or i think maybe it's in the video or playback oh, right somewhere. here we
1: go here we go yeah yeah that's that's the one all right so i'll rewind <clears throat> play again There we go, very nice picture. So like I said, this has some really intriguing possibilities for propulsion that have only been very recently investigated. And we'll get more into that um, in just a little while when I start to turn all of these terrestrial reactors into space reactors. So let me go back to slides. Uh, Let's get rid of this. Uh, Oops, I think I lost it all together. Shoot. Hang on. Share screen. Back to that. Put this in full screen. Uh, View. Full screen, there we go. All right, hopefully everyone can see my screen again. Uh, Yes. Good, great. Okay, Uh, so that was a trigger reactor. Let's go to taking these from power generating systems into a means of propulsion. So turning a terrestrial reactor into a flight weight rocket involves a few things. First, we get rid of the coolant. We don't need a static cooling system. We're going to be jetting stuff out the back anyway. Then we get rid of as much shielding as we possibly can. There's already a lot of radiation in deep space. We're not really adding a lot more to the environment. It'll be okay. Then we add a big tank of cryogenic hydrogen. We run the hydrogen through the core, jet it out the back, instant rocket engine. And... With the NERVA project, back in the uh, late 50s through the early 70s, this is exactly what they did. Um, Here's a slide of uh, showing one of the uh, NERVA rockets that they built. Um, This is a solid core uh, nuclear thermal rocket. And note how similar it looks to both a standard rocket engine and a standard nuclear reactor so over here on the left side we have all of the turbo pumps and plumbing that you would have on a normal liquid fueled rocket engine on the far right we have the nozzle that kind of thing that you would have on a normal liquid fueled rocket engine in the middle you can clearly see the bundle of soda straws that is our reactor core so this is not just a schematic like i said back in the 50s Through the early 70s they actually built a bunch of these um actually dozens of these to be exact here are this is an in fact an incomplete chart of all of the rocket engines that they built um i just picked out some of the more interesting ones. they built dozens of these they tested them for extremely long durations and if you look at this chart you'll see that all of these rocket engines are a chemical propulsion engineer's dream we have um, test times of sometimes hours. We have uh, uh, ISPs starting at twice of what the best chemical engines can do. Um, we have thrusts approaching meganewtons in some of these cases. So, this unfortunately, uh, this program unfortunately died out in the 70s. Um, due to environmental political concerns. Um, But it is worth noting that a few of these engines produced uh, were in fact flight weight and could have been put on a rocket engine or on on an actual uh, launch vehicle. Okay. So you'll note back on this chart um, that The uh, power that they produce um, doesn't necessarily go entirely into thrust. I mean, you know, a lot of it does. You're jetting hot hydrogen out of the back, getting rid of a lot of your energy. Um, That said, um, there is still the possibility of using these to produce power for your onboard systems as well. This is called the bimodal concept. Since we already have a nuclear reactor running on our space vehicle, we may as well get some electricity out of it at the same time. Um, So as you can see on this little flow diagram here, um, all you do is you divert a little bit of the uh, heat to run a um, turbine and uh, recoup some of that uh, energy in the form of electricity. Another concept that's been looked at is the trimodal or Lanter, which stands for LOX, augmented nuclear thermal rocket. Since you have hot hydrogen coming out the back, you can also add some oxygen to the stream as kind of an afterburner. You'll be losing efficiency because now you're getting into the realm of chemistry and not nuclear physics, um, but you can increase thrust at the same time. So this may be useful for um, doing orbital maneuver changes, things like that on uh, space missions. Now note that you're certainly adding complexity to the system in both of these cases. In fact, on the trimodal design, you're adding a lot more complexity because now you have to deal with liquid oxygen and a hot oxidizing environment at the nozzle. But still, there are some studies that uh, indicate that the trade-off may be worth it for certain missions. Okay, so Nerva like I said, very typical of these solid fuel concepts that we're wanting to make use of. Um, again, this has been explored to death back in the 50s through the 70s. Um, and in fact is undergoing a resurgence, which I'll get into at the very end when I talk a little bit about the future and what we are looking at researching right now. Okay, so there are other nuclear propulsion concepts out there, not just solid core. Some of these are scary. And we'll talk about one of the scary ones right now. Um, so in the mid fifties, so the legend goes, um, a nuclear test was done in the Nevada desert. It was an underground test. They sunk a nuclear bomb um, a few hundred feet underground, capped the shaft off, with a manhole, set up cameras, detonated. The high-speed camera that recorded that manhole um, caught it in just a single frame. But from that, it was estimated that its speed was 65 kilometers per second, making it potentially, if this legend, and frankly, this might be an urban legend, um, if this is true, it would be one of the fastest objects, um, man-made objects ever. Now, this particular story may or may not be true. That said, some propulsion engineer might have heard this story and said, hmm, what can we do with this? Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the Orion concept, moving fast by blowing things up. The idea is that instead of slowly running hydrogen propellant through a solid core, you can just get a few thousand small nuclear bombs in the kiloton range. You can stuff them into an ejector system, like like, uh, cans of soda in a vending machine, and eject them out the back of your spaceship about one per second and detonate them. Using a pusher plate, you can absorb a lot of that energy of the shockwave, turning the jerky explosion into a somewhat smoother motion. motion. But you can ride the shockwave of that nuclear Blast. Uh, Even scarier, and yes, someone actually did a study on this, um, you could use a sail instead of a plate and detonate the nuclear bombs in front of you and push the sail with that. Nuclear engineers can go a little bit crazy sometimes, particularly when thinking about terms in terms of space propulsion. All right. So, unlike other rockets, the Orion system is easy to scale up. You add more bombs, you make them bigger. That's about all there is to it to make these things huge. ISP is huge. It's an incredible number, 50,000 seconds because you are in fact riding a detonation wave, which works completely differently than static combustion. Thrust can be in terms of meganewtons, because again, riding a nuclear blast. On the downside, this requires an incredibly massive vehicle. You need a lot of shielding, you need a lot of mass to absorb all of that energy. And the environmental impact? Well, yeah, this, this is not the thing to launch from a surface of a planet. This is possibly for use in space, maybe if you're that daring, but you would never want to leave the surface of the earth with this thing. Oops, too fast, okay. A few Orion designs in ascending order of crazy. Like I said, this is not a small system. And in fact, really likes to be scaled up um, because the more mass that you have, the better able you are to ride a shockwave, the more like normal fluid motion that kind of thing becomes. So the smallest that was devised the smallest Orion vessel had a diameter of 20 meters, ship mass of 300 tons, used 25 ton yield bombs and about 500 of them. That was the smallest as they figured that they could make it. Note that this is much larger than most rockets are now. The Designs got only crazier after that. And in fact, if you want to colonize Alpha Centauri, you could in fact, in theory, build a 40 million ton Orion ship with a diameter of 20 kilometers, use 30 million one metric ton, one megaton yield nuclear weapons to do it. Yes, someone thought at one point in time that all of these were good ideas. And no, there might not be enough fissile material in the entire world to make 30 million one megaton bombs. But again, this is just some of the things that people think about um, when looking at these kinds of pulsed nuclear detonation concepts. Okay, let's scale back the crazy a little bit for now. We'll get even crazier later. Okay, uh, first a few takeaways from the Orion project. If we do ever need to evacuate the planet in a hurry, you know, some extinction level event coming toward us that we can't stop, some science fiction kind of thing going on, um, Orion is probably the best we could do at our current levels of technology. In more practical terms, Orion is a useful model for any kind of high energy pulse propulsion system. For instance, if we turn fission into fusion, we turn the bombs into tiny pellets, then we might have something interesting. Okay. So back to more traditional designs. Like I said, scaling back the crazy just a little bit. So the problem is that nuclear thermal rockets are at their heart heat engines and subject to the same laws of thermodynamics as every other heat engine. In particular, your efficiency scales with temperature. So the hotter you can get the core, the more efficient you can make it. So, why don't we just let the core melt instead of relying on solid fuel rods, we'll let the core become a liquid. Uranium fuel rods melt between 1500 K and 2500 K, depending on the precise composition and vaporize at between 4,000 and 6,500 K. So if we can keep that temperature in that range to where they are liquid, but not yet vaporized, then maybe we can increase the efficiency of our engine even more, even over the baseline NERVA design. Now on earth, it would be disastrous to let a nuclear core melt, but on space where you don't have so much gravity to deal with, there are some interesting possibilities. Maybe you could spin the chamber and hold the nuclear fuel in by um, centrifugal force. There are a lot of interesting ideas as to how to contain a liquid nuclear fuel and keep it separated from the hot hydrogen that you want to use as a a reaction mass. Okay, so since we're already trying to keep liquid uranium contained, why don't we just let it vaporize? So a liquid core reactor can give you an ISP of about 1500 seconds, about twice what a solid core reactor design can do. If we just let the uranium vaporize, we can bump that up significantly. Um, So fuel is around 7,500 K and injected as a wet vapor. ISP is now bumped up to 2000 seconds. Now, of course we have the added difficulty of keeping the vaporized fissile stuff from escaping our reaction chamber along with the hydrogen. But since we've come this far, why don't we just turn up the heat a little bit more? This is the gas core or nuclear light bulb. So instead of using vaporized uranium, what we do is we use uranium hexafluoride gas, pressurized uranium gas. This is contained in a quartz bulb Um, that has a melting temperature right around 6,000, 8,000 K, depending on exact geometry and composition. Hydrogen is passed around the bulb, hopefully fast enough to keep the quartz from melting. ISP is bumped up to 5,000 seconds, and thrust can be in the mega newton range. But there are serious engineering problems to contend with. First of all, you have to absolutely keep that quartz envelope from melting, which means you have to be circulating hydrogen propellant through that system as fast as possible to get rid of as much heat as possible while the reactor is in operation. Since the reaction mass, or since the core rather, the reactor core is a gas, you're going to have difficulties with moderation. You're going to have difficulties with um, throttling the reactor. Still, from a strict engineering standpoint, this is possibly the best that we can do in the short term. Thrust in the meganewtons, ISP of around 5,000 seconds. This nuclear light bulb um, engine could theoretically get us to any point in the solar system in a matter of months, even the gas giants. So, you know, very great for for uh, from a mission design perspective. Okay, all of these previous reactors, um, barring Orion, are heat engines and are subject to the laws of thermodynamics. But what if we could just ditch the laws of thermodynamics altogether and not tie efficiency of our engine with the heat of the core? So let's go back to trigger reactors. Every time they pulse, they generate as many prompt neutrons as a nuclear bomb does. What if we try and capture these neutrons um, by a propellant with a high cross-section like hydrogen, for instance, That propellant can theoretically gain more energy than would be allowed by standard heat transfer. So your output fuel can be much hotter in terms of kinetic energy than the reactor core itself. This could in theory give you an ISP up to about 1 million seconds. Now note that there are not very many papers on this particular topic. Um, some of the ones that are there are classified, Um, and this is a relatively new concept in terms of exploration. Um, The earliest paper I was able to find came out in 2011, I believe. Still, if we want to decouple our engine efficiency from our engine temperature, this is one potential way to do it. Okay, oh. while we're discussing that, why bother transferring energy at all? A fish- uh, yes, uh, yes. T- around 20 minutes left. So, making, okay, uh, yeah. I'm I'll, I'm almost there. I'm going to wrap it up here soon. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, so, um, a fission fragment rocket, um, instead of bothering to transfer energy, just jets out the fission fragments. All of those. Um, Krypton and rubidium nuclei, all of the free, you know, alpha particles, beta particles, et cetera, that are produced in the fission reaction itself. Jet them out the back. That is your reaction mass. On the upside, ISP is incredible because these particles are traveling at near the speed of light. So your effective exhaust velocity is huge. On the downside, thrust is best measured in units of hummingbirds. Um, And fun fact, a hummingbird can generate up to about 50 millinewtons of thrust. So there was a more or less realistic NIAC design study in 2011 that came up with a pretty good working model for this type of engine. Um, They estimated thrust at up to about 43 newtons for the system as a whole. With an engine mass of 113 tons, uranium's heavy, nothing you can really do about that. Uh, And an ISP of around 500,000 seconds. That combination might not serve well for human missions, but would be great for interstellar precursor missions or long duration probes. Okay, now I've saved the best for last. We come to the scariest on our terms of on our uh, scariness scale. Uh, This one is from Robert Zubrin, who's pretty much the king of scary. Um, and it is dedicated to all of those people who really liked the Ar- idea of Orion, but decided that it wasn't quite explody enough. Can we take Orion and somehow make it more explody than it already is? Ladies and gentlemen, the nuclear saltwater rocket. So what you do is you dissolve highly enriched uranium salts in water. You contain these in hollow rods made out of something that absorbs neutrons, like borated steel, for instance, and then you use a series of pistons to evacuate all of these rods into a chamber all at once. When the streams cross, when all of this highly enriched radioactive liquid comes into contact, they go prompt supercritical pretty much instantly. And here's the important part, it will continue to do so until you are out of fuel. So essentially, this is a megaton class nuclear weapon that just never stops exploding. All right, this is the basic design. And here are some statistics to go along with this scary beast thrust, 15 meganewtons, ISP 500,000 seconds. Chamber temperature and pressure are in the oh my God territory. But if you want an Epstein drive like they have on the expanse, show in books, this is pretty much it. This would get you to anywhere within the solar system in a matter of days. So there we go. All right, Um, since we got 20 minutes left and I imagine we have a lot of questions, this is a good question stopping point. So what I'm going to do is I am going to stop sharing for now in order to better take questions uh let's see how do i stop sharing there we go all right so we will go in more or less order here Uh... okay triga by general atomics corporation manufacturer of predator and reaper yes it is the very same general atomics Um, fun fact, um, they didn't start off making drones. They started off making stuff for the nuclear industry. That is why they are called general atomics. Um, so yeah. Uh, in fact, um, Freeman Dyson, one of the pioneers of the Orion concept, um, was, uh, more or less on, uh, you know, permanently employed by general atomics during his working career. So yeah, they, uh, they uh, are, are big into nuclear propulsion. Okay, next question. Okay, what is the size of the Nerva rocket? Um, so the size of these, um, so they, they did all the way down to uh, the smallest being a flight weight rocket, the uh, NTX series. That was um, approximately the size of uh, space shuttle main engine. Now, of course, you have a big tank of hydrogen feeding into it. Um, you also have some shielding that space shuttle main engine does not need, um, but similar scales um, in terms of size. Um, Let's see, anything derived from the Peacemaker nuclear propulsion modified bomber? Okay, there are, and this is something that would be very hard for a regular person without clearance to find any information on. And, uh, okay, so, there are some things that I can say about this because they've been made public. Um, there was an experimental nuclear reactor made for propulsion purposes. Um, it was about the size and this was, uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands, it was about the size of a 55 gallon drum and, uh, it's produced about one gigawatt of thermal power different than electrical power, different than jet power, of course, but thermal power, it produced about one gigawatt. In that compact package, um, it was a reactor specifically meant for propulsion. Um, But, uh, of course, that size did not include the amount of propellant needed to feed it, nor did it include any kind of shielding considerations. That was just the size of the core. But, yes, there has been work done um, taking some of those designs and modernizing them you would be hard pressed to find information on it. Okay, was this before Chernobyl? Yes, a lot of this research was done before Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl did put kind of a damper on nuclear propulsion and power research for a while, but it is really starting to pick back up again. Even in just the last decade, things are starting to move away from paper and into the real world once again. Um, In fact, you may have heard about the Kilopower Reactor. Um, That is a reactor that has been built. Um, It is now being tested. Um, It, uh, you know, testing fully fueled even um, in the deserts of Nevada. And it is a fun little device uh, meant for space power production um, that, uh, you know, is uh, about the size of a, I'm trying to think of, something that's about the size of, about the size of a floor lamp and will happily produce 10 kilowatts of power for 20 years, pretty much unattended. So yeah, there's a lot of research into this that's going on right now. And we're really, uh, with some renewed support from NASA and the department of energy, we're really on the cusp of a new golden age of space, nuclear power and propulsion. Um, okay. Okay. Let's see, Uh, next question. Oh, this feeds into um, what I was just saying. With respect to bimodal NTR, it is my understanding that CERMET type reactors are more effective than composite due to the limit on the temperature in the tubes. Where in CERMET can you actually get to 1200 in the closed loop uh, helium xenon duct tube? Could composite be modified to enable temp hotter than 700 Kelvin? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, there is, this is one that I don't have the time to answer as it deserves. Unfortunately, the short answer is, um, you might want to take a look at some, um, not just Cermit fuels, but take a look at halo fuel geometry as well. There have been some really interesting designs in terms of fuel composition and geometry in just the last few years that may blow this whole thing wide open. Ton not actually intended. So there we go. Um, Do I work with Megan Mitchell? No, I don't. Um, Are you assuming that the laws of thermodynamics are wrong? No, no. I uh, (laughs) am not assuming that the laws of thermodynamics are wrong. I'm assuming they are right. And it's, you know, pure and simple, a law of thermodynamics that. High temperatures equate to high efficiencies, but it's not so not the only means of achieving high efficiency. So efficiency in terms of ISP, um, specific impulse, is based on the speed of the exhaust gases. And this is what electric rockets do, electric propulsion systems like ion propulsion don't actually heat the propellant, they accelerate them using electric or magnetic fields there are likewise some nuclear concepts that can get to incredibly high efficiency, fission fragment, for instance, um, not because they're making anything hot necessarily, but because all the stuff coming out the back just happens to be going very fast. Um, so that particular point has nothing really to do with the loss of thermodynamics. Okay. I uh, mentioned that um, the Orion concept has environmental issues when launching on the Earth. Are there any environmental issues with other ideas? Yeah, unfortunately a lot. And most of the idea, these ideas um, are being looked at not for getting off the earth, but for in-space propulsion only. Um, yeah, I I so, there's a difference between the science of what is possible and the politics of what is likely. And I don't see any of that, any of these nuclear propulsion concepts are ever likely to be used as a means of departing Earth's gravity well. But as a means of departing Earth's orbit, yes, absolutely. Uh, what funding is available for hardware development? Um, so, NASA has actually been increasing spending on that um, to the tune of about a million dollars a year um, for hardware development. So this just in the last few years. Um, So yeah, things are are looking up in this field. Uh, For the Iran concept, what momentum transfer causes the change of velocity on spacecraft? There is no medium to act as propellant. So is it the particles in the detonation wave? Yes, it is the particles in the detonation wave. Impinging upon that shock, that that pusher plate. Uh, wasn't there a Nerva concept used that uh, used air as the working medium to allow un- essentially unlimited atmospheric flight time? Yes, there was. Um, there were several of these ideas explored um, in the fifties, sixties, um, and then they were brought up again in the early two thousands for nuclear cruise missiles. Um, They haven't gained a lot of traction, mostly because of the environmental and political concerns. But uh, yeah, it's absolutely a possibility from a physics and engineering standpoint. Okay, which of these concepts are more manageable when we reach our destination and are no longer putting energy into exhaust? Um, mm. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, Honestly, Probably the ones that are safest are the traditional Nerva solid fuel approach. Just because there is such a body of research um, and practical engineering behind them, and we know how to deal with solid core reactor design and construction and operation. Um, All of these, it is worth noting, even the solid cores have problems with heat rejection in space. Which is a completely separate issue. Um, In point of fact, any advanced propulsion concept is likely to have heat rejection issues. And so there are people talking about um, using things like uh, oil drop radiators and oil droplet radiators and things like that um, for, for doing heat rejection. But yeah, any science fiction spaceship concept that uses some kind of nuclear propulsion system and does not have massive heat sinks is likely wrong. Okay, nuclear fusion. Where does nuclear fusion fit in? Okay, is this too advanced or not practical? Where are we with this technology? It's not too advanced, it's not impractical. It is an entirely separate two hour lecture. And I could, This, uh, again, if I had all day, I could go on about this, but I had to hit my limit somewhere and I decided to give everybody a good grounding in nuclear physics and not list concept after concept after concept. So there we go. Uh, What about a nuclear reactor system, gas-cooled to generate electricity for plasma propulsion, like BESMER? Um, Actually, most of the advanced propulsion concepts do require such massive amounts of electricity that they absolutely need some form of nuclear reactor on board the spacecraft. Um, Okay, I've always thought disappointing that most advanced fusion and fission reactors essentially boil water to spin a fan. Is there any research going on for other means of extracting usable energy that doesn't rely on technology from the 1800s? Yeah, there is. Um, And that technology is magnetohydrodynamics, um, which, if you can get your exhaust, your plasma hot enough, then that becomes a viable thing. That said, again, this is enough, That's another lecture entirely. Um, but yeah, it is an active area of research. Uh, electric power has focused on RTGs. But I heard that there's been a breakthrough in beta batteries. Uh, there have actually been some breakthroughs in beta batteries as of late. Um, Nanobat, or I think is the name of the company that's, um, researching, um, graphene based nanobatteries, a nanovolt, nanovolt. Um, the problem with beta batteries is that, um, while they do have a nice, um, energy density, they do not have a very nice power density, um. So, yes, a beta battery can run a long-duration space probe just as well as an RTG up to a certain power limit. But they don't scale very nicely once you get beyond the tens of watts level. Uh, Let's see. Uh... Okay, what kind of setup reactor does the Russian nuclear cruise missile use? From what little we know and what little you can find from public sources, it's basically a solid core Nerva design, but one that is air breathing as opposed to um, hydrogen. Uh, Re-share the last slide on the insane engine, yes. Um, I'll do that in a moment here and then also, how to suggest to try an experiment in the lab without causing a calamity. How would you suggest to develop a prototype? Okay, so nuclear fission reactions are not something that you can build in your garage, unfortunately. That said, nuclear fusion reactors you can build in your garage. And if you wanna go that route Again, I couldn't really touch on that for time constraints, but if you wanna go that route, um, look up, there's an issue of Make Magazine from several years ago that tells you how to build an inertial electrostatic confinement fusion reactor in your garage, um, also called a Farnsworth fuser. Um, I myself um, actually have a small dense plasma focus device that I play with that's in the kilojoule range so, yeah, fusion reactors, build away, have fun. Um, the NRC won't likely come knocking at your door. Every three-letter agency on the planet is going to come knocking at your door if you try and build a fission reactor um, in your own lab. Um, now, again, this is an active area of research, and there are plenty of licensed laboratories that are starting to build prototypes and are starting to do testing. Um, all of the big national labs are involved in this. Uh, Los Alamos, Sandia, Oak Ridge, um, some of the private laboratories as well. So yeah, yeah, there are people actively doing this. But yes, you do have to be licensed. you do have to have a million dollar facilities, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, let me find that last slide again of the thing uh and try and share it again Uh, okay share screen that one share there we go okay uh and as the saying goes thank you for coming to my ted talk I think I ran over by a few minutes, but uh, hopefully we can roll with that.
0: Thank you, Jim. This is so fantastic. You know, people are so excited, and I uh, uh, wish we can, you know, we can arrange uh, for you coming back for uh, the more crazy
1: idea. That you... <laughs> <laughs> oh, like I said, fun. I could go on. If you wanted to schedule me for half a day or even a full day, I could, I could do it easy. Oh, really? Wonderful. We'll do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, in people, fact, I... I have
1: a whole nother slide deck on fusion and other weird stuff that I'll include when I I email you the link to the slide decks on Google Drive.
0: Okay, let's let's arrange that.
1: Thank you so much. Appreciate
0: this is wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, excellent. Stay in touch.
1: I will. Okay, I thank you. I'm gonna turn off my camera and um, enjoy the rest of the the talk.
0: Yeah, stay with us. Uh, Michael is here. So we'll start with him now. Stay. Yeah. All right. So our next speaker is